In this episode, we discuss one of the three main sub-themes of the exhibition Evaporating Suns, which is Perspective Negotiations. I sit down with Fatma Ferdan, who is an Emirati artist whose practice is facilitated through research and driven by inquiry, who is currently a resident artist at the Cultural Foundation in Abu Dhabi and a Kawadar Research Fellow at NYU Abu Dhabi, as well as Zuhur al Sayer, who is an Emirati artist inspired by movement and stories, and her research revolves around indigenous textile practices and the decolonization of her own craft, which she explores through her work in fiber, sculpture, and mixed media. Fatma and Zuhur are here to discuss their commissioned work for Evaporating Sons, titled Um al-Khadar wa Alif. I'm also joined by my lovely co-host and colleague, Hassa al-Nuwaymi, who is an Emirati curator and researcher. Khosh Bosh for Evaporating Sons, Contemporary Myths from the Arabian Gulf, an exhibition presented by the KBHG Foundation and curated by Jawaza Curatorial Lab. The exhibition opens on May 12, 2023 in Basel, Switzerland. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Or good afternoon. How are you guys doing today? Very well. Yeah, I think we're, we got over the Dubai traffic stress mm-hmm. and now we're okay. So for, I think it's best to start with a question for the listeners who don't know anything about your, the artwork you're working on, collaborating on. So uh, what can, like, what is it? What do you, what would you like? What's one sentence you can destru- describe this artwork as? Mm. How would you introduce it to someone who hasn't seen it or hasn't heard of it? Mm-hmm. I think um, you know there's like two key points of description for for our piece, and um, the first one is the the title and the conceptual backing, and then the second one is the the kind of like visual visual. Um, element of it you know we're on a podcast so there is no visuals <laughs> yeah so I think that's it but it's a it's a good opportunity to have that kind of description um so our work is titled uh Um Al-Khadar Walif um Um Al-Khadar Walif is a, a a folk tale or a myth that's told um to children to to scare them into not going out at night um Um Al-Khadar Walif is a a woman who is a witch and she's elderly and she um is part Nakhla part day palm um, and part woman, uh, she kidnaps and eats children, um, who are out late alone at night. Um, and we kind of, we unpack this myth, we unpack, um, what it means to villainize a a woman who is elderly and and unwed and and without children. And then also, um, the visual elements that are attributed to Um al-Khadr-Walif, which is like the, you know, like the kind of texture of the palm fronds being her sometimes her head sometimes her arms like it's it's always different um in in the description but it, what it inherently is is a cautionary tale for children to not be alone at night in in places that are kind of barren maybe with lots of trees and, and that's the 
the connection that's made so we, so you can unpack it on lots of different levels you have the villainization the villainizing of women to protect kids from danger that was probably real at the time um but you know at at what cost and mm. um the second part is the the, the, the visual element or i mean you can elaborate on yeah. that so it's uh, the Omar Khadr relief is a three podium like uh, not podium i don't think it's a podium but it's like circular cylindrical uh, sculpture And we use uh, paper pulp um, to uh, like uh, actualize the, the sculpture, and it's a big part of our materiality. Um, we also use um, uh, the fronds from the tree, and we supplement this uh, three cylindrical sculptures with an artist book that we are currently working on. And all of this, uh, we draw it from our uh, date palm research, which uh, like Suhoor initially started in February uh, 2020 last year, and she invited 20, me. 20, 2022. Two. Yeah. yeah. So Suhoor <laughs> started in, in last year in 2022 and invited me to join her to like study the date palm. So uh, everything that we're learning, uh, in the like we're learning, we learned like in this period. Um, a little before and while making the sculpture. Mm. So if I can jump back a bit, how did you guys first meet? Um, Zuhur and I met in the SEEF Fellowship, the Salam Hamdan Emerging Artists Fellowship. We were studio mates. Um, our studio were like, we were the closest to each other. Um, and Which we watched each other. recurring trend, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we watched each other work during uh, the studio. And um, a story I told during the fellowship, it was, we figured out later, a one-sentence story. Um, it just, like, simmered with Zuhur for a long time. And when she decided she wanted to study the date palm, she invited me. She was like, you were, you told the story and you were interested. And do you want to study it together? Wait, what was the one line? Um, so it was two trees were forced into marriage and um, they decided to take revenge on their families by producing so much heirs and the heirs are the dates like from the tree and I like I don't think anyone could count or, or anyone counted like it's yeah. how many dates there are that, that, that a tree produces yeah. And uh, and I'm a big and the reason the connection that I made with what I was starting this research on and and the conversation with with Fatma is I was interested in the domestication of plants and in particular that the the nakhla is the earliest um, domesticated um, tree that we know of. It's it's we don't it's been like hundreds and hundreds of years and and it doesn't produce fruit without the intervention of humans. Um, which was something that was super interesting to me. So this idea of, of that that metaphor and bringing in the kind of human into that and like social um, social issues and social questions um, regarding marriage and things like that. And, and also it came after the first summer ever that I've, I've been in the UAE and my parents were abroad. My whole family was abroad. My siblings were abroad. And I was in the UAE, um, and so I had to deal with all of the fresh dates that we were getting <laughs> from our farm. And, and, and fresh dates, it's not like when they've been dried and packaged where it's like you can deal with it like kind of slower and, mm. you know, like you distribute it when you have I guests and things like that. But with fresh dates, it's immediate. You have all of these fresh dates. If you don't do something with them, they're going to go bad. Um, so I was, I had to deal with like distributing them to whoever's still in the country and it was so hectic and I was making desserts and I was making pickles and I was doing, 
um, doing everything. And um, so I really felt the, the truth of that story that, that Fatma told and um, that kind of abundance uh, being a blessing and, uh, and a curse at times. And it's a nice thing to share, um, but not everyone knows what to do with fresh dates. I think it's something a bit more like regionally specific in that because if you, unless you have a, a culture or an economy for date farming, you're only going to receive imported dates, which are always going to be dried. Um, they're, they're never going to be really fresh. Yeah. Uh, I want to know two things. First, Zuhu's farm is the farm like we visit in the summer and we mm. like we based our research on. And it's it's a semi-commercial farm. Zuhu, correct me if I'm wrong. So they produce a lot of dates. No, it's not. It's not commercial. There's no, we don't sell anything from Okay. Farm. No, no, I mean... I don't mean it like in in the selling, but yeah. I mean it in the in the in the quantity. Mm. And the quantity is it feels like yeah. no, but in the in the context of in the context of of date of farms, our farm is considered a small farm, okay. and the amount of trees we have is considered like really not a lot. So it's interesting because that this is like considered it's like I couldn't deal with it, and it's a much smaller mm. amount. Like I have families whose farms are like significantly larger, and so. So it's it's much more intimate, which I think is nice. And then also for our research with the Nakhla, um, our trees are fairly new. Mm. They've been planted in the past, um, I think only like eight, seven years. Um, and they took a, it really took a while to grow. And so the they only started producing dates in the past five years. Um, but they're still at like human height. They haven't reached the height where like you have to kind of climb them to get the dates or access the dates or, or, or anything. Like they like semi climb them, but you could also use a ladder, you know, like it's mm. not that they're not that high. So we had this like intimate experience with the the date palm as it was um, flowering and then as it was being pollinated and then as it was bearing fruit and, and the struggle of bearing fruit and then the you know, they have to cut down the amount of, of um, date pods because it, it, the, the tree can never handle how many dates it produces <laughs> when you mm -hmm. pollinate them. So they cut that in, in half. Like, they only keep half of the, mm -hmm. the bundles. And then even that, they need to keep tying and um, supporting the, the date bundles. To, like, there's just, there is so much intervention into making sure that um, this this tree can thrive and produce to the best of its ability. Mm. Um, we also found out that the female tree is worth so much more than the male tree in the market. Because it is the tree that produces the dates. Like mm -hmm. The male tree is just the pollen of the male tree is used to pollinate the uh, female tree. And it's like a human process. So like someone would take the pollen from the male tree and put it in the female tree. And we saw it in the farm. Uh, the second thing I wanted to note was that uh, when Zuhur was describing like the, the getting all the dates and having to distribute them, it's a circular process. So everyone in the community has like, a form, like my family has in, in our garden and in the house, maybe like six or seven date palms. And like we get all these dates in the house and I see my parents and everyone distribute them and decide which house which dates are going to, etc. So like as you would be sending dates, you'd also be receiving dates. And it's um, it's a circular process that, and everyone grows different date trees, so you get different kinds. So it's, it's I don't know, it's like circular generosity. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Um, I had a question about the farms. Um, I know that Zuhur's 
farm, just as you mentioned, as a young one. But did you, both of you, grow up with a farm, like visiting one and like playing with the palm trees and like we don't have grass in the UAE, like <laughs> in, our, in our farms. Yeah. <laughs> um, Heard those like weedy things. Yeah, it's just, we, but it's definitely not grass. <laughs> it's definitely not grass. Yeah. Like, uh, I grew up playing with like. Yeah. the background I don't, it's like soil weed but i grew up like with the trees did you you know how did the stem mm. you know it starts when you're young and especially with the introduction of the myth of um al-khadr al-leaf mm. i did not grow up with that myth mm. so did you guys grow up with it as well when you if you visited your farms any mm. other farms so. yeah we we grew up with it um i grew i grew up with it i, I think because we it, yeah. we we came we came up with the malkhabit relief from a brainstorming session um and we found it like in the pockets of our brain and we're like what is that who is she like <laughs> and what <laughs> and does we, it mean and what like, does it mean yeah. and we were just like we don't we don't know we know her we know we're afraid of her but then we couldn't <laughs> remember what the story was we couldn't remember what she was and so I, I asked my my mom and i have a lot of great voice notes from my mother from like asking her these things and she like explains to me you know like whether it's like how to make gahua or it's something like and she always answers the most insane of questions <laughs> but um so i had we had the, got the description from my mom of like what she is and what her name means what umal khadar relief means and and what the different parts are attributed to um so so yes but we didn't we didn't have the clear memory we had to look and seek for this the clear mm-hmm. memory um, I grew up going to my grandfather's farm in Doha, and he has, mashallah, a, a beautiful um, date farm as well as, like, animals and stuff. So we, we grew up, like, playing with the goats and, like, to just rabbits and, and all of that lovely stuff. And um, my grandfather has a tree that bears red and yellow dates. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's just, like, this magic tree. Um, and it's been known to us as this magic tree. He has a he has a magic tree in his farm, and we have no explanation for why this tree bears red and and, and yellow dates. Um, but the farmer came one day and was like, you know, like this tree is doing this crazy thing. And so I think I always had this um, association of of tree and magic, um, mm. in particular of the of nakhla and and the magic that that comes with the nakhla. Um, I think was always important to me. During your year of research and visiting farms, did you venture out at night to, you know, have a spiritual connection with the Malkhabar <laughs> no, no. Only in the no. Culture Foundation. Only in the Cultural Foundation. <laughs> the date, the, yeah, the date palms in the Culture Foundation. No, there was there was one day that we ended up there like, not even that late, but it started to get dark and we both, I don't know, I felt nervous. Did you feel nervous? And I remember mm-hmm. telling you, um, I was like, I'm a bit nervous. Like, mm. I'm anxious. It's, uh, I think <laughs> it's, uh, she's here behind us. No, no, it's not that here. It's, I think it just becomes a space which, like, I don't know, the human, like, needs to leave. Like, uh, like it, I feel like it's, it becomes a space for different spirits. Yeah. Um, I just want to go back to when, when Zuhur was saying she asked her mom about Umar Khadar will leave. We didn't explain it here, but we found out that it me it's um, like in Arabic it's a kinaya and a nakhla, which means Umm uh, al-Khadar al-Khadar is like the fronds of the tree and a leaf is the fibrous trunk. Mm-hmm. So it literally says like oh like this is the mother of tree or something mm-hmm. and it describes the tree. But because we weren't familiar with the words, like we didn't pick it up when we were younger. So it was um, I don't know. I love it. I love <laughs> I love that like the the words. <laughs> 
it's a long name, right? Mm. For, yeah. for a boogeyman. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to also talk about how the relationship between humans and the Nakhla, like you already mentioned it a bit, how it's uh, the earliest domesticated plant and we usually frame it as a codependent relationship. Mm. And you mentioned a line about how it's difficult for the palm fronds, like this character of the of the Nakhla, to bear all this weight. Is mm. it really codependent or is it like subjugation to our needs? So this is the question I think that we ask a lot in our research and our and our process of making is um, probably the date palms, if they were left alone to just exist and, you know, not make fruit, they would be completely fine and completely happy. Mm. Um, so we are subjugating it to that, you know, to produce mm. our, our, our fruit and to produce our needs. Um, um, and we found out that, like, uh, it was uh, an oasis in the desert, the date palm would grow vertically, not horizontally. So it mm. would grow; the root would grow vertically to um, to reach the water table and extract water from the water table. So mm. it would sustain itself. Um, or they would also they also would grow horizontal roots. I to guess to the water table. Yeah. So yeah. it's yeah. So they 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 grow to adapt to where they are yeah. to basically. Yeah. Like they have different characteristics based on. Where they are, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, and their fruit wouldn't be as like lush and big as it is uh, like when it's grown in a farm because it mm-hmm. it's there's so much water to uh, there's only so much water mm-hmm. available for it to grow this to the size that mm-hmm. it can. And when the when the tree's not pollinated, it produces something that looks like a small nut, like it's almost like the 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 date at its earlier stage when it's like small and green. Oh. So it will produce that, but that's as that's as much as as it'll produce, and that comes out of the the female part of the the palm tree. It produces like a little green thing, but that's it. It won't um, become a full fruit. It's interesting that we frame it as a codependent relationship. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it becomes sorry, it becomes codependent when we intervene. They then need us. Mm. So eventually, like so, but it's. You know, technically not. <laughs> we like feeling needed. So much to unpack there. <laughs> and can you talk more about the research process? Because it's almost two years of research between with you. It's almost two years of research that you've done together for this project. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, like you've done. Uh, uh, research where you visited farms as well, but like. In what context of research have you, like, we we know because we've been following with you for the past two years um, that you've done religious, like, the religious, uh, uh, sorry, I forgot that it's the word. Symbolism. Symbolism, thank mm-hmm. you. Like, the religious symbolism of the palm tree and then other, like, the cultural, like, context as well of mm-hmm. what does it mean to have a date palm, <laughs> a palm tree, a palm tree. In, in our culture, in our country? Uh, so I would say our research is three part. The first was visiting the farm and consistently, consistently visiting it, observe the five stages. There are like five stages of growth, like pollination, and then like the, it ends with the tamar season, where the after the ratab season, where the ratab is just dry to make tamar. Um, Can you name the five? 
No. <laughs> we always rely on a diagram. Yeah, we... And because the diagram has English letters for me, I can't read no. English letters that are of an Arabic word. Like, Same. my mind doesn't work like that. <laughs> so, yeah, we need to find an Arabic diagram. We do. Yeah. Or just translate. And we so, need to memorize it. Yeah. This is like... yeah, for sure. This is your homework after yeah. this podcast. Yeah. Um, So that's that's the first stage. The second stage was we wanted to interview uh, people who have a close relationship with the date palm. And uh, then the third the third um, thing we did in our research kind of happened naturally, like, for example, this commission and also programming that like we were invited by a circle to program uh, last summer for part of their summer program, which was called uh, More Than Human, and it was exploring the underground, the beyond ground, and ground. So we took part in the underground, and we, uh, in that, uh, in that, like, programming, we programmed a weekend, and a lot of the, a lot of the participants of those workshops, and, like, there was a film, there was a workshop, there was a performance that, like, we commissioned, and, um, Like a lot of the people were so generous in sharing stories, so I think like uh, that that program, like although it happened naturally, and like we like we used our research to back it, like to as our conceptual backing for the program. Mm -hmm. um, we we were like we were. I was like floored by the generosity of the audience, like especially after the performance. And uh, we, the performance was by Metha El. Um, Metha Suedi and Dream Al Manhali, and it, w- it ended up being a work in progress performance because they didn't have enough time to develop it. But uh, after that, after the performance in the Q and A, like the the audience just began sharing stories with us, yeah. like it was so beautiful. Like one person said, like she has uh, her fa- like they moved uh, f- uh, they moved houses like at least three times, and every time they moved houses. Um, They move their palm trees with them and just like goes to show like the cultural relationship of the palm tree. Like it's like part of the family. Um, so we're we're still I feel like we we didn't uh, like like we're only like going into our like collecting stories and like we're figuring out how to like collect them. Like how do we collect and like where do they where will they exist? Another interesting story which was shared with us is that um, that if. You were to sit alone under, and this is, they say palm tree because it's what's there, but they actually, it means like any tree. If you were to sit under a tree alone at night, especially if you were a girl, you can be possessed um, by the tree and by the spirits, spirits that live on top of the tree in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like another, you know, element of fear with the same thing. It's like, don't go alone at night in fields, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. because that could be dangerous for you. Um... And then there's also the religious element. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so on one tribe, I, 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 like, I like the surahs and the Quran, which tell stories. Like, I'm really drawn to these surahs. So I was listening to Surah Maryam. I'll read it in Arabic and then I'll explain in English. فأجاءها المخاض إلى جذع النخلة قالت يا ليتني مت قبل هذا وكنت نسيا منسيا فناداها من تحتها أن لا تحزني قد جعل ربك تحتك سريا وهزي إليك بجذع النخلة تساقط عليك رطبا جنيا. So it basically says like that contractions moved her to the uh, to the to the date palm, 
uh, and she said, "I wish I had died before this, uh, uh, because I would be, uh, I would be forgotten." Uh, it was called from underneath her. Do not be sad. Like your God has placed beneath you a stream. Shake in, in your direction the trunk of the date palm and ripe rutab will fall upon you. So it kind of symbolizes fruit and fertility. Mm. And we like we, we think about the story and we think about tafsir and like how it's usually like um, interpreted to be um, the... the um, that the shame of society, like when she says, I wish I had died before this, like that it's usually alludes to the shame that is, will be brought upon her by society, which is true and valid. Uh, and we think about also her human pain, like the, the that I wish I could have died, because one of the, like, we always hear like one of the biggest pains that a human can experience is in labor. And we think like, what if it's also her pain and not just um, the okay. shame? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and part of the work is a, a small um, book or zine, artist book, I would say, that uh, Fatma and I are working on. It's an accordion book, and it's from paper um, that we made using the same paper pulp that we used in the sculpture, um, treated a bit differently. And uh, the text there is our kind of creative writing slash free speech slash combination of things that we wrote in our research statement um, along with stories that we decided to tell um, and and so we're pulling from fact and fiction and, and bringing these two elements together to create a narrative in a book that that sits and supports um, the the sculptures and, and and basically you'll be able to to sit and read and bring yourself to a lower position um, close to these these sculptures and, and you kind of start to have the feeling that the size changes of the of, of the sculpture is because it, it starts to feel bigger once you sit a bit lower, um, and you get to read our story, which is a mix again of fact and fiction. And we also wrote another um, uh, essay that uh, like was uh, supposed to go into the publication, and I don't know. I just loved writing this essay with yeah. Zuhur because we started free writing, yeah. and. Uh, like she was thinking about like uh, going to the Qatar Museum with her dad mm. and reading uh, a mis uh, mi- like a trans a wrong translation or like mm. a mistranslation, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about like like uh, how how do I use the tools that I was given and like how sometimes like these um, the lessons that I was taught are might not be the lessons that like I agree with and so how to restructure them and I don't know I said build an airplane, mm. um, so. Like we in this in the, in, in the essay we just brought everything together so yeah. <laughs> and it just worked like it's just yeah. like we like we uh, allocate like allocated the uh, the paragraphs among yeah. each of us and we just like edited them and then yeah. brought them together and it worked. I have like a traffic light editing system and and mm-hmm. so I do this in particular with like collaborative writing and and anytime I'm editing work for friends or you know whatever, um, so it's always like re- it's like red yellow this is a question mark sentence and then green like this is a good sentence this should be pushed that's um, a really good system yeah, yeah. That. It, it it really helps because then you start to visually see like what what works and what doesn't work and uh, and it helps break up your writing i find and writing is a really important part of your practice as well like we we've been lucky enough to visit your studio multiple times and every time the notes on the wall grow they're like mm. post-its and sketches and 
just like I think we learned through writing and Sif and mm. um, before that like uh, when I was doing my last year of university when I was developing my capstone project like I learned these uh, like uh, generative writing tools as well and I think Sif like reminded me of that I was like oh I did that and you know I just did that to generate work but like okay now I can also use it to generate work and it's such a generative tool like I think uh, uh, writing for me is like uh, a mode to understand like understand what I'm trying to say like like and unpack things in the subconscious like it's just like I think it's a great tool to further unpack um, especially like free writing and times free writing and like there's many systems like so we we use them so what is the system that you use? We are familiar with it, but... Mm. So a, f- a free writing system that we use is... Uh, one of them is a five-minute, t- like a five-minute... We usually do five minutes. Mm. And uh, you don't... The pen doesn't leave the paper. Like It always keeps touching the paper. Mm-hmm. So we just write and write for five minutes. And then we pause. And we usually give each other prompts. So, mm-hmm. so that we... Like one time we gave three prompts of something that we unpacked. And we're like, okay, we need to unpack these three other things. And so we wrote. Does it have to be pen and paper? Or do you like... We type yeah. sometimes. I don't, yeah, do actually, we have. We do type sometimes. Yeah. I think they produce different results, mm-hmm. though. I think sometimes um, when we know a bit more what we're writing, it's typing. And then when we want to really... It, sometimes we free write for it. We do like three of these free writing sentence, sessions and you have like three sentences that yeah, are good sometimes it's those, nothing like, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's everything yeah, exactly <laughs> like as we visited your studio in the past at least i like i think the whole team and i have been very impressed by the amount of paper you have uh sticking on your walls in your mm-hmm. studio and we also get very like much inspired as well um by the stories written by the drawings and the little sketches so it's also like a very interesting like brain map that we see and Mm. we get to visualize the artwork before we even see it Mm. in ways that we want um which is a good practice for a visitor and a viewer you know um Mm. so yeah it's a a very interesting practice as well Mm. never heard of this so you know i think initially when we started free writing it's because we have like we're two people working and we don't have access to each other's systems. Like mm-hmm. if we're writing on paper, then it's just Zuhur's notebook or my notebook. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we, in the studio, we like just one time decided to print like our uh, our writings and we just hung them up. But mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear you like, like how you experience them. Because for us, like at least for me, like every time I go into the studio, like they're just part of the wall now. <laughs> <laughs> so like I, I like sometimes I read them again, like when I want to go back. But it's mostly like it's, a reference that we already established and like we moved past mm. um, and for us ev- after every visit we see new things on the wall mm. and for us this is something new like a new episode a new thought that like came out mm. um, so it's we're very pri- privileged to see that like grow it's very exciting speaking of your studio you guys are working in the iconic cultural foundation which Hessa here is our ex- one of our experts in yeah. this room on. I think we have a lot <laughs> did of guys. Did I tell you I found your thesis? Did you? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, in our so I we did this archival exhibition that I think you know I think you I don't know a if few you years ago it. right yeah yeah um, and I was looking for something and and I found uh, your essay I found your thesis and oh. I was like oh Hessa <laughs> I was like this is so nice <laughs> uh, it's 
It's very nice to hear that that my researchers like uh, reached out to like. Has I sent it to me. <laughs> I can send of it. Of course, I can send it to you. Of course, it's in the NYU With library thesis. archives as well. Okay, I can oh. also oh. plug in that. Yeah. Huh? Say your thesis question. Oh, my thesis question. <laughs> to sum it up, it's understanding the role of the cultural foundation within the. Ab- the community in uh, Abu Dhabi, the art ecosystem, mm-hmm. and what has the cultural foundation, like, uh, what has what have they established? And they were a non-government entity before, so they stood alone, which was very interesting. And, mm-hmm. I didn't know uh, Yeah, uh, one of, like, very iconic, like, weeks where they do, like, Japanese week, and then they'd have mm-hmm. all these amazing, like, uh, movies and um, artworks that they'd exhibit there, or, like, then they'd have uh, amateur artwork week where they, like, get uh, teenagers to put up their artworks who are, like, still exploring what they want, what they like, and I think it's a very great, like, initiative, and well, thinking, like, one of my research uh, aspects was about the architecture, and uh, I don't know if you remember the Culture Foundation back then. Uh, it was filled with palm trees. Mm-hmm. It was like rows of palm trees mm-hmm. and like greenery, which was very exciting, very interesting because how it is, how how it looks right now. It was more of a history um, yeah. research. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's, and, a very, uh, it's a very. They also had temporary exhibitions there, right? Anyone mm-hmm. could show their work for yeah, two weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it, like. People from around the UAE, people from around the UAE would come just to sh- see what was going on. It was like a central node in the UAE's yeah. art scene, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's been that way for a long time. So the fact that Zuhur is the assistant curator at the Cultural Foundation, and Fatima, you have a studio there where you both work, yeah. and you're also doing the artist residency there, right? Yeah. So initially, like I began, um, I was selected as a resident uh, for the 2021-2022 cycle mm-hmm. of the Cultural Foundation residencies. And initially, like when we, like when we developed the the sculptures, and we kn- we knew like their sizes and what we we're gonna build. Uh, Zuhur and I had the conversation like, okay, where where will we build? Um, and uh, we, then we decided like to use the, my studio that, like, at the Cultural Foundation and it worked out perfectly because Zuhur works there. So after work, like she would come to the studio and I would then also come to the studio and uh, we would like, we spent so much time in the Cultural Foundation and like mm. we would always work both of us after work. So it would be like a five to eight slot p.m. And uh, it was so nice to drive to the city after work against traffic, Amy. <laughs> and I see, like, the, the lane, everyone, all the cars stop. stopping. There's, it's horrendous traffic above the levee. Um, and I was like, yay, that's not me. <laughs> so I, t- I would drive, and it was so nice to go into the city. Like, it's uh, 30 minutes away from my house, but, like, just to see the architecture and, like, the culture, the space of the Cultural Foundation and the area is, like, I, I wouldn't have access to that area if, like, I didn't have a studio and, like, to spend so much time there is such a privilege. Like, I really, really love this mm-hmm. residency. And, yeah, I um, and I also now in nice weather months, sometimes when I need a break, like I go out and I sit like with the nakhlas and I read, and, and it's a really nice moment. Mm-hmm. And I've had sometimes like people from my work, like, What are you doing? Especially during the Al Hassan festival, because we had to leave for them to do the security sweep once a day. Um, and so I would just leave and I would go find like a nice shady spot by a tree and I would read, and it was just so nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they, they offer so, Nakhla's offer so much 
um, respite from from the heat um, and just yeah from that particularly mm. technical perspective but then um, working somewhere that has this amazing history that you know built legacies of so many of our our established artists mm-hmm. um, and then also having this kind of night at the museum feel where you're we're like walking through mm-hmm. the exhibition um, that when we the worked on yeah, when it's closed and yeah. most of the lights are closed and wow. um, um, and the gin are out to play yes yeah. exactly yeah. and and it's like and it's just it's it, it can feel very surreal um, mm-hmm. and I my colleague the other day called me Hannah Montana she was like <laughs> she's like you're, she's like you have the best of both worlds you know like you have this it's, you know the, the curatorial perspective and the institutional understanding and then you can like you recluse into the studio and 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 I think that's and in the beginning when I first started working there was always this question like are you are you going to be able to balance these two things um but what has happened with me is I feel like that these two things really started to inform themselves mm-hmm. um my curatorial practice and also where I work mm-hmm. um is, is so important to my artistic practice and and you know the research um, that I do curatorially informs the research I do in my artistic practice. Um, those conversations are so important and so mm-hmm. interesting to me. Um, the artists that I meet because of my job is also always amazing. You know, like I'm in the presence of giants on a daily basis. Um, mm-hmm. And especially when it comes to working with um, the established Emirati artists, mm-hmm. um, because you realize they had to do so many things as well as be an artist, yeah. you know? They they worked so many jobs, whether they were in the arts or not in the arts, to be able to um, sustain themselves, sustain their lives, um, sustain their practices, their families. Um, so it, it really helps put things into perspective and, and to see their kind of creative output alongside my own practice and, mm-hmm. and our collaborative practice, I think, has been mm-hmm. very fruitful. It has Fruitful. Oh, good one. Yeah, yeah. I see what you did there. Yes. And um, the your studio also looks like a lot of fun to play in. But you guys have experimented a lot with mat- different materials, and uh, so you use uh, paper pulp, right? Or yes. wood pulp? What's it's paper, paper pulp. pulp. Paper yeah. pulp. Uh, use net. We used wood and galvanized wire and plaster rolls. Mm. And how much experimentation did that take, or were you set on specific materials? So start? our question mark was always the structure. Mm-hmm. It's like, how are we going to build this cylinder? That we also wanted it to be light, so we didn't we didn't want to have like we didn't want it to be like a block of wood. We wanted it to be something that's light and malleable, um, and but sturdy enough to obviously travel to Switzerland mm-hmm. um, without breaking. Uh, and also, I think the the conceptual importance of it being this thing that's kind of grounded and rooted and isn't going to fall apart is important too. Okay, I have a couple more questions about Umal Khadar. Yes. Why? I mean, I have some theories, but I want to hear you guys talk about it. Why do you think that the this myth is told to children to keep them from playing out late at night, keep them away from danger. But why specifically did they choose a woman or a female uh, resembling character who's also often characterized as barren, right? Like she mm. can't have kids. Mm. But why is she being demonized? And why are so many myths uh, centered around evil women? Like how mm. many myths do you know about men? 
mm. or like barren men. Nobody talks about that. It's always <laughs> a woman. Mm. Um, I actually asked my mom this question, and she was like, uh, "This is not the conversation <laughs> we're having today." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and I was telling her like, "But I only know Bubrega, which is like uh, <laughs> um, it's um, yeah, which is um, like when." Yeah, and it's like temporary. Like if you get exposed to like uh, cold weather suddenly, like your half of your face could freeze. And I know it because my sister, it happened to my sister one winter break. But I think uh, it's always a woman because it's a critique on women. Like ev- like everyone has to critique like women all the time. And I think like, I don't know, but also at the same time, uh, it's um, because I uh, in my family, like and, and in a lot of families I, I know, like women, women like, like stronghold the house like mm. they run it mm. so I think it's like the morals are coming from your mother mm. so and that's why it's like the mother of so I don't know I don't know if initially it was told by a woman and she was like okay we're the instructors so yeah. we're gonna like you know but I'm not sure yeah I think historically there's um, a lot of also mistrust around women who defy any kind of social norm. Mm. Um, and not, not having children is a social norm to, def- to, de- to be defied. And I think um, <clears throat> when, uh, so, and, you know, of course, we're talking about, like, the, these, like, historical examples of, like, witch trials, for example. Like, the, the things that <laughs> used to be able to get you in, you know, like, of being accused of being a witch were <laughs> very mundane mm-hmm. um, things. And, and, you know, you, you're maybe unmarried and, like, going out on your own. You know, like, that can... Witch. Witch, you know? Like, yeah. why... Are you happy and unmarried? And so I think um, there is a lot. Um, there was always this question of women with agency. There was always this question of women um, who had who had power, who decided to take different roads, because it was assumed that women were not as um, capable. They were not as um, capable of making their own decisions of existing independently in society but about but your point it's also funny that women are either or at the same time are seen as incapable and also extremely capable yes. of mm. it's, uh, convincing manipulating men yeah exactly mm. like you're 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 incapable of of living your own solitary independent happy life but you're a witch. <laughs> you're capable of magic and, and connecting to forces greater than the universe. Mm. So it's, an, it's, it's very a, true. It's, it's, it's strange. <laughs> that, that paradox is, mm. is quite crazy. And I mm. think um, that, um, that even when we stop believing that, even when we stop believing and we, we try as much as possible to not villainize women who are different, um, it just sticks. It's it's what you know. So so these myths come as a result of that. Um, like you said, you don't remember the myth exactly, but yeah. you remember the fear. Yes. Somewhere <laughs> in the back of your mind, there is the fear. And another interesting thing you said was maybe these like she's known for kidnapping children, but maybe the children went willfully. Yeah, we, I yeah. think uh, both of you told me last time I was in the studio like. Maybe she gives the children more autonomy. Mm. Maybe she treats them better. Maybe they mm. want to be with her. But is this grooming? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, who knows? Like, as a parent, you yeah. know, like mindset. Um, one question I had, like, we also did our own side research as the Raza for these uh, regional myths that we have. And we've, 
we've noticed, yeah, there are more female uh, like characters, evil as characters, evil <laughs> characters than men. I have my own theory of this. I don't know if I should delve into it. Uh, Please do say it. Okay, I think there are more scary stories of men, of real life men, than yeah. there are of women. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we don't need myths. <laughs> uh, we don't need myths to be scared of men. Yeah. I agree. Um, I mean, interesting. You know, this is my theory, and yeah, w- women are evil as well. Like they are for sure, but you know, to go through all these like horrible descriptions mm. of her being half a let's say Umduis, uh, half a donkey mm-hmm. or like Umar Khadr Ali, mm-hmm. like half a palm tree, you know, you have to make it extra scary for these children. Um, and like thinking of the context, you know, all these like drama, dramatic like uh, stories and Grimm's brothers, you know, where like there is no fairy tale, but like, yeah, I, this is what I think. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because uh, out of like 10 characters, two are are male, like scary male. Mm. They'd be like, um, how would they be? They would be like uh, killers, like serial yeah. killers, basically. Mm. I mean, yeah. A bit more real, like a bit more grounded in, in kind of a reality, like mm. yeah, than a mythical thing. Yeah, mm. I mean. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. I've been, as well, like when I was younger, like I would be told real life stories. <laughs> I was like, oh, don't go there. They're going to, kill you like or something mm-hmm. like that like i don't know maybe it's a more like scary approach or something but mm. it's also worth noting that um villainizing women especially in myths is not something specific to this yeah. region no, no, no. in no, my definitely. region all around the world like if you look at most myths yeah usually the evil one is a woman or yeah. has female characteristics hansel and gretel like the yeah. evil uh, mm-hmm. and mother witch. figures as well yeah mm. yeah and the crone the crone exactly I learned that yesterday. What's from It's an evil spinster woman. Which Actually. No? Another <laughs> 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 I learned it yesterday. <laughs> so, interesting you brought that up. Interesting you brought that up yeah. because uh, one of the other artists in the show, Fatima Uzdonova, is exploring the uh, female trinity, feminine trinity of mm. the crone, the maiden, the mother. Mm. And the crone, it's funny that you brought her up as someone evil or as a witch because um, that's how she's represented in fairy tales like Snow White uh, but actually the crone is uh, anti-capitalist and like anti-patriarchy and she's someone who just lives on her own terms and is very bold and like she's an anarchist an anarchist <laughs> kind of yeah and all of us like as women or anyone can manifest these uh, different identities at different points in our life but usually crone is older women that have kind of like grown into into themselves their confidence their beliefs and are like mm-hmm. also very giving nurturing but more bold more mm-hmm. uh more likely to defy mm-hmm. the patriarchy mm-hmm. cool viva la crone <laughs> <laughs> okay i have final question for you guys both of you growing up what was the scariest myth you ever heard and do you think you will pass it on to younger generations or other children, for example, siblings, cousins, future kids? I think I will pass on, yes. Uh, but I think, like, for example, like the passing on of things, like, for example, as a cautionary tale, like, um, I remember, um, the, uh, so in Meta and Reem's performance, Amulets of Palm, 
uh, Reem cuts up uh, the date the date front and uses it as bakhur, so like incense to bring up out um, like a samar. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in that, and I was I wanted to replicate it just to see what it smells like. And it was that night, and I was having a conversation with my mother. I was like, should I just go and like you know take a front from the tree? <laughs> and she was like, لا. <laughs> she was like, تحبين حد يمتع شعرك وانتي نايمة. Which means like, do you like someone to pull out your hair when you're asleep? And I, uh, and it's just like, I was like, ah, oh. so it's like out of respect for the tree. Like she's sleeping and, you know, we're not going to go near her. Like, she doesn't want to be disturbed, you know, don't disturb people who are sleeping. So I think in that sense, like to, you know, protect nature and also like to respect that it has its own time, like like it's functioning like with us, like alongside us, like at night it sleeps in the morning, it's, it's up, you know photosynthesis you know? <laughs> um, and then I don't know like another thing that I think about is like don't go to the beach at night like or like don't swim in the ocean at night yeah. and like spirits will pull you I feel like that like I, I still wouldn't want to do that you know yeah. and so I will pass it on yeah the, the sea one is interesting because um, you know we grew up our families are kind of our, our families are from the sea, they're sea bears, they're merchants, um, they're pearl merchants. So there, there was so much closeness to the sea, um, but there was, as a result, there was so much fear. So there mm-hmm. was a generation of, of you know, our family members who don't know how to swim, because you're 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 taught to to not trust the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though. I grew up going out in the sea. There was always cautionary tales around the sea. Like you, you should you should fear the sea, mm-hmm. um, and that is this the the only way to really be safe in the sea is if you if you have some element of fear. And it's and again it's like considered mm-hmm. the sign of respect for the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, my grandma always used to say, "Al bahar gaddar," like uh, it can betray you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And 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 it is again because there was so much loss associated mm. with the sea at the time too, as as well as, um, as well as wealth and uh, as and prosperity. There was a lot of loss that came from the sea. Mm. Um, I have a crazy one yeah. that I was told um, sure. by my, our lovely caregiver uh, Sylvia, I think. Um, if you sleep, she'll deny this. If she apparently, because I've confronted her about a lot of the crazy things she told us as kids, and she denies it. All. My mom too also denies it. Um, and she told me that if you sleep on your back, you're more likely to get possessed. What? In your sleep. Mm. <laughs> oh my god. And I changed the way I sleep. I changed the way, and I I recently realized this like a year or two years ago. I was like, I used to sleep on my back. I don't sleep on my back anymore. Mm. Although they said sleeping on your back is better. Yeah, like I heard the yeah. opposite in يعني مكروه تنامين على بطنك like that oh, also yeah. also but you're so where do you sleep on your side <laughs> <laughs> on your right side yeah on your right side <laughs> yeah exactly mm. and I think another story I shared with you Zuhur was um, I used to like uh, when I. Uh, I realized this also recently, like when I was younger, like there was always be like a war uh, playing on television and I never, re- and there is like these tags, I, I, they would scare me, like I would just sit and they would play and I didn't realize that, but they always came up in my nightmares. So I would wake up like so scared and go to my parents' house and parents' uh, room, not the <laughs> house, we were already in my parents' house <laughs> and go to their room and because they anticipated that, 
um they'd like there was always a mattress on the on their room and I would like sleep there like and what because I was already in this nightmarish headspace um they had like a hanger like a wall hook where all their abayas and my mom's abayas uh, and my dad's can do like stacking up so it's like a person standing there <laughs> so like i i would like ex- it would exacerbate in my head like okay this is a person and they're approaching and uh. <laughs> to this day i still get scared of like the illaga yes so mm. now i changed where it is so when i wake up in the middle of the night i don't see this big black person like standing yeah. in the corner of my room yeah. hanging by their head <laughs> especially when you're a child your imagination runs wild like yeah. now as an adult maybe you can calm yourself down mm. you I, I just don't have a hanker in my room yeah no, none anymore <laughs> I don't have clothes in my room I don't <laughs> <laughs> always on the lookout and I sleep standing up <laughs> because there's no good position except you're right <laughs> that's a good thing I had a question though one last one yeah. what is your favorite date because um, there are plenty hmm this is hard I think there's different ones for the different what I need like I love to bake with Mitch two dates which is can be controversial mm. um, <laughs> I think there's one called Sukkari and that's also oh, my sukkari favorite sukkari is so one, good like, sukkari means sugary as yeah, well in English so good so mm. yeah it's really really lovely I like whatever there is at home. Like, yeah. I eat everything, but I I grew up not liking rutab because I didn't like yeah. the, the the like gooey bitter. like no like the 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 soft part. The soft and hard part, and I just like didn't like the texture of it. But once I tried it, I was like, okay, you know, like I cannot not like rutab. Like yeah. it's a disgrace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I tried it and I was like, oh, okay. It's nice because then it's then what's nice about rutab is there a sweet side and then like a not sweet mm-hmm. side mm-hmm. and then you combine mm-hmm. in your mouth. Like. And then in your other hand you have a little uh, cup of coffee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The yeah. So um, for the listeners, we suggest you go try out Fatma and Zuhu's favorite dates mm-hmm. and rutab. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you both so much for joining. It was a pleasure talking to you. It thank has you, been a fruitful you. conversation. A fruitful mm. conversation. Well, do dates. <laughs>